0: Good morning. So good to see you all. God bless you. Uh, Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 18. Uh, If you don't have a Bible here, uh, we read line by line and verse by verse. It's important to have one. Uh, If you don't have one, can you please raise your hand? One of the ushers or elders will just bring you one to wherever you're sitting. So please don't be shy. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand. Uh, Want everyone to have the word of God. If you don't have one, that's yours to keep. So uh, Jesus wants you to have it. Uh, we had a very interesting week, didn't we? A very interesting week, yeah? God went before us and he overturned the Roe v. Wade and yeah, praise Jesus, praise the Lord. Um, I will tell you that it's, it's, it's a start, it's a start, you know, uh, we don't have any trigger laws in this commonwealth or state that, that precludes abortion in this state. Um, we're praying that change in the midterms, which is where all of you come in and vote Uh, and and get out there and be a part of that, okay? Because uh, as we're going to go through the passages today, God has not changed in Scripture. Uh, Murder is murder. Violation of the moral law is a violation of the moral law. That never changed. The Decalogue didn't expire. It doesn't have an expiration date like your carton of milk, okay? So uh, that doesn't change. I will say this, that I'm convinced uh, by Jesus Christ that when we want to start or see a stop to the travesties, is when the church and the pastors of the church will stand up and make sure that they continue to read the word of God line by line and verse by verse, the whole counsel of God. Because I'm convinced that when that happens, what will happen is the heart will be changed. And when the heart's changed, then I believe it won't be an issue about trying to change culture, society, and policy. It'll be a transformation that the Holy Spirit does in the believers, I believe that's when you'll see the revival. You'll see the great awakenings that we pray for. And I'm just convinced of that, that it's one heart at a time. And it begins with my heart here tonight, this morning, all the time, all day, uh, first. But it begins with every one of our hearts. And what you do and where you go and how the time you spend in investing into others, all of that matters. You are the light of Jesus Christ. Never to be hidden. Always given freely and perfect, beautiful adoration and love. And so with that, I'm going to put my glasses on because I just looked down at the words and I realized there was a problem for a minute. Uh, I went, Lord, I don't know. I know you can do it, but just do it, Lord. Um, I'd like to back up to chapter 17, verse 20, so we can get a little bit of a running start here this morning. Um, We're going to read that. We'll pray. And then we'll get into our passage, which is actually chapter 18, verse 1. But I think just for context sake, it just helps us, uh, helps me to to get back into the, the mind of Christ as he was explaining this. Again, about four and a half, maybe maybe five weeks to his crucifixion. He's making his way to Jerusalem. This is the last time he's passing through these areas, okay? Samaria and Galilee. He's making his way very, very quickly. Um, yet his timing is perfect. And... He comes across, as he's going, there's multitudes, and in verse 20, he meets um, some Pharisees. Uh, those are the religious leaders of the day, okay? Uh, there were also Sadducees, but the Pharisees, and they asked him a very, very good question. And we talked about that last week as we studied. We went through the scriptures, and we looked at why they would expect the kingdom of God to come on earth. We, 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 we understood that they misunderstood that it was a two-part plan. If you remember, and you were with us last week, it's a two-part plan. And they didn't understand that because they had taken one or two chapters or passages in Scripture, uh, Isaiah 9 and other passages like that, and they made their whole eschatology based off of one or two chapters instead of taking the whole counsel of God. And, and that's the same thing that can happen to all of us if we, don't, if we don't take the whole counsel of God, the Old Testament, the New Testament, all the Word of God, properly uh, interpret that in light of the fact that Scripture never contradicts itself we would arrive. We will come to the right, the right place and the right answer. Well, they're asking a question because they don't get it. If you're a Messiah, Jesus, then why is still Rome oppressing us? That's the Jewish mind. And so we're going to pick up from there, and then we'll jump into our passage this morning. Now, when he was asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them and said, the kingdom of God does not come with observation, nor will they say, see here or see there. For indeed, the kingdom of God is within you. Then he said to the disciples, the days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. So now he's talking to the disciples. I want us to see that's important because everything we're going to read today, the focus is on disciples and some religious leaders, but he's he's focusing on the disciples right now. He's speaking to them. He says, there's a day that's going to come and you're going to see the days and you're going to wish you had the days of the Son of Man and you will not see it. In other words, during uh, these wicked times, you're going to want Jesus to be here. And I can say, amen, 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 so be it. I think we're at those days with evil and wickedness and all the, you know, things that just have been happening over this last weekend, uh, you know, businesses destroyed, windows broken, people harmed. Um, come, Lord Jesus, come. And they will say to you, look here, look there. And we talked about last week, the distractions, there's so many, even you know, religious distractions. We'll, we're going to see those things. If we're not careful, we'll get, we'll get you know enamored with them and take our eyes off of Jesus and his soon return. Do not go after them or follow them. That was a command God gave. For as the lightning that flashes out of one part under heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his days. You're not going to miss it. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Okay, now he's coming for the first part. It's the suffering, it's the rejection, it's the pain for sin for all of humanity. Why Jesus Christ went to the cross. It's Psalm 22, it's Isaiah 53, it's the passages like that that we read in the Old Testament that describe this as the suffering servant. And so he's now bringing that to the disciples, saying, be students of Scripture. You want to know what's happening? Look back at the Word of God, and you will understand the days you're living. You will understand these things. And that's how God goes back and appeals to them, the disciples, believers, and as it was in the days of Noah, interesting. So it will also be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives. They were given to marriage until the day Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. He's saying that the culture and the society, and they were doing what they'd always been doing. They didn't discern the times. They didn't recognize times. I mean, they literally had a man building an ark. If you've ever seen a picture of the Creation Museum ark or in Kentucky, you know, you look at that thing and how could you miss it, right? I mean, like right in front of you, you know, and they're like, "Ah, I wonder what he's doing today, and they're off doing their thing, and just, you know, meanwhile, that door to the ark was open for any one of them that would have come on, right? I really believe that. I don't think it was exclusive just to Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their three wives. That invitation was open. What we read is that the society and the culture was more enamored in the cares of their lives, continuing on the things that they were doing to not even recognizing That this man is building a boat because God said there's a great flood that's coming. It's one of those moments of he who has ears, let him hear what the Spirit has to say. Likewise, as it was also in the days of Lot, not a different example at all. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah, you think of the sin that was going on then. Uh, I, I'd say we trump that today in America. We trump that in this world. They ate, the, they ate, they drank, they bought, they sold, they planted, they built all the normal things that would happen in society. But on the day, Lot went out of Sodom. It rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Again, they were all about what they were doing. They weren't looking. They weren't discerning the times. Even so will it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's what it's going to be like. In that day, he who's on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down and take them away. And likewise, the one who's in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. He's saying, remember that bad example there? Don't repeat that. Don't look back to the world and say, well, wait a minute, one more, one that, no. Like Elisha, burn the plow. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. I tell you, Jesus is saying this, in that night, there will be two in one bed. Some of you might have men in italics. I talked about this last week. That was added by men uh, that was not in the original manuscript, which is why it's referenced in italics in your Bibles. The one will be taken and the other will be left. This is clearly a picture to the rapture. Two will be grinding together. The one will be taken and the other left. Two will be in the field working. So we see that some people will be sleeping. Some women will be working or men or people will be working. Uh, One will be taken. The other will be left. There's no way to discern who that's going to be. Uh, You know, only God knows the true heart. I think it probably was a surprise to some of those. Uh, Maybe even husband and wives. Surprises. They saw their, you know, they woke up and their spouse wasn't there. He's, He's indicating that's what it's going to be like. And the other thing he's indicating is it's a worldwide rapture. It's not going to be a one central location. It's, it's going to happen worldwide. Wherever people are, people will be sleeping. Because as we know, while it's daylight here, there's another part in another continent where it's what? It's nighttime, right? So it, we understand it's worldwide. And they answered and said to him, where, Lord? Fair question, you know, the disciples are asking. You know, where's this judgment going to happen? Where, where, where are the things going to happen? So he said to them, wherever the body is, the eagles will be gathered. Remember, I looked at, we looked at Revelation nineteen seventeen. But the idea here is wherever there's corruption and death, that's where you're going to see the judgment. And then we're going to go into chapter 18, verse 1, because he says, Then, and so let's pray and we'll, we'll continue. Father, uh, we thank you, Lord, that we are here. We thank you, God, that you overturned this law in this country that uh, Lord conditioned men and women to think murder was okay. Forgive us, Lord, for uh, we have all sinned and fall short of your glory, Lord. We pray, God, that uh, you will continue to protect life. We know that it's ordained by you, Lord, and no one has authorship over it but you, Jesus. Lord, you don't make mistakes. I just thank you for the family. I thank you for the way you've built family units, friendships, friendships. Lord, I thank you for your holy word that recalibrates our minds and our hearts so easily we can drift away, Lord. I can drift away from things that you want me to think about. You want me to be in the spirit. You want me to be praying about, Lord, not to lose heart, not to, not to grow weary, not to stop praying. Not All of these things that are very important to live out a disciple's walk, a Christ follower's walk. Jesus, I pray for all of us here this morning. We we desire that, Lord. We desire more of you. We love you. Have your way in us. We want to lay down all the things that are competing with you, competing for our attention. We want to rest. Lord, we need rest. Wash us, cleanse us, heal us, Lord, and deliver us from all evil, Lord. We pray and ask us in Your holy and mighty name, Jesus Christ, and all God's people. Pray, Amen. Amen. Chapter eighteen, verse one. This is our passage we'll be in today. Um, again, the context was end times. Initially, He was talking about that. Um, that was heavy. He, you know, He laid that out pretty, pretty succinctly. The Lord did, but I imagine the disciples had, you know, sort of the, the heavy heart. Um, Wow, Lord. Um, If you look at chapter 18, verse 1, he said, "Then Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not lose heart. One of the very few places in Scripture where he actually gives sort of the scope or the point directly in the beginning of the parable or in the beginning of the teaching. Normally, he'll introduce the parable, and then at the end, sometimes he'll give us an explanation of what it means, or maybe the disciples will ask a question, and then the Holy Spirit will you know, add and deliver upon that, and we read about it. In this case, he wants us to understand very clear at the onset what he's talking about in light of what we just read, what he just spoke to his disciples, speaks to us right now that... We need to be men and women of prayer. Amen. You know, every Sunday at six PM we have corporate prayer, and I am pleading with you. You know, we are watching God move in this country. We are watching, uh, quite honestly, as I heard some of the um, different um, dictators, uh, call them uh, leaders, in other countries uh, turn around and in Canada and like describe. Uh, how, what a travesty it is in America because we, what we, you know, the laws that have just changed. And it's a reminder that God is not done with us yet. God is not done with the United States of America. God is not done with our nation yet. Sometimes we see that downward spiral and think, Lord, is it too late? Um, certainly, I don't think it can be stopped at this point. I, I really believe that. Uh, these things needs be. God allows it. It's coming to a point where the rapture will come and then judgment will follow and then we will return for a thousand year millennial reign. Those things are on track according to God's timeline. But he wants his believers, he wants the body of Christ, you and I, those that are born again believers, not to do two things. One, not to stop praying and talking to the Lord. That's the first thing. We need to be people of prayer. People that pray together, stay together. It is so important as I mentioned earlier in my introduction, this country, this, this state, this commonwealth of Pennsylvania, we don't have a trigger law that just said murdering a child is wrong. That can change in November. We ought to be praying now. We don't wait. We, we're, we're a people of prayer. We pray, then we go, right? God has always declared that prayer is our mighty weapon. We're not just to lay that down. It would be equivocal to laying down your defense, your shield, your sword. Why would you do that? No, you take up your armor. You put your armor on. Ephesians 6, 11 through 17, he teaches us. So in this aspect, he's telling his disciples, pray. You always, not sometimes. So I'm inviting you all out of six minutes. Please come out and pray with us. There's so much going on right now. We need to bathe this all in prayer and watch God move. Watch God move. And then the other thing he wants us to understand, he speaks to the emotion of the human being. I think we're all aware that, especially some of us that are a little bit more older or have been around a little bit longer and we're seeing things that we never thought we'd see. I know I honestly thought I'd be raptured by now before things have gotten to the the place it's at. And there are days you can wake up and you can... You can approach things with a heavy heart. It can cause you to lose heart, be discouraged sometimes. It's in those moments that I love this passage and I return here and I read this. My God, my Lord, my Savior, my Jesus, he tells me, pray, don't lose heart. Don't lose heart, Matt. No, I've got this. I've got you. There's a plan and a purpose and God is working it out. Be faithful. Be faithful. I'm not asking for your opinions. I just want your obedience. Jesus says to them, There was in a certain city a judge who did not fear God nor regard regard man. Now there was a widow in that city, and she came to him saying, Get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterwards he said within himself, Though I do not fear God nor regard men, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she wearies me. Then the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him, though he bears long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily, Nevertheless, when the son of man comes, still in context, will he really find faith on the earth? Wow. So a couple things that the Lord's pointing out here. He's doing a compare and contrast. As a matter of fact, this parable and some of the other parables that we're going to read, actually the next one with the tax collector we're going to read, he's doing a compare and contrast. That's what he's drawing our attention to. He's certainly not saying that he's a God that's indifferent to when his people pray. That's not what he's saying, like that judge is, that unrighteous judge. He's helping us understand the difference. He says even in human terms, humanity, even men grow weary because people will ask the same question. Some of you have children, right? Uh, My young children, we get in the car, you know, and are we going to go such and such? How long will it take? Okay, it'll take this many minutes, hours, what have you. Okay, and inevitably, about ten minutes in, are we there yet and this continues on for the trip, whether it 's twenty four hours, fourteen hours, or five uh, there 's no correlation to the uh, my father you know, I, I laugh because I think back of some memories of my fa- my father um, I shared this with first service, so I feel uh, I should share this with you. Uh, you know we would be in the car, and many many of the trips I remember going up. Um, humble humble beginnings, and a lot of times my dad, um, because his dad would do this, they would get in the car and they would drive as far as they could get, uh, where he knew that he could turn around and make it back in time, so that way he would be able to be to work on Monday, and sometimes just to see and explore, and you know, we'd have picnics and, and do a lot of fun things like that, but my dad was a little bit of a trickster. So, uh, you know, when I, it wasn't like today where there's restaurants everywhere and you're on the highways. And I can remember driving and, you know, some of you remember those golden arches, the McDonald's, right? And that that was like, you know, code for my mind, happy meal, toy, right? Like, I didn't even care so much about the cheeseburger or the whatever it was. It was all right. I mean, I don't know what they put in it, but but I was just happy for the happy meal, right? You know, and I was and I can remember being in the car. My dad would time it, though, where we would be getting near one of those. And I do believe it's deliberate. Like he's with, you know, he's, he's gone. I don't know. I can't ask him now. But I do believe it's deliberate. He would say, who's hungry? Now, what young man that sees the golden arches, or young woman, isn't thinking, dad's pulling off and we're going to get a happy meal, right? Inevitably, he would turn and say, grab the boy a sandwich. I got one packed in the back. <laughs> and... but he never grew weary of that. You know, he would say once in a while, you know, I grew weary of that. He never grew weary of that. I thought for sure with my constant, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Fine, get the boy a meal. Get the boy a half. Maybe he'll be distracted. No, no. Times were different. It wasn't so easy to do that. We didn't just cave into what our kids wanted. It wasn't, yeah. So, here we read, there, there's a certain city. He doesn't even call out the city. The idea here is this is applicable everywhere. That's why he doesn't call out a particular city. And there's a judge. And he didn't fear God nor regard man. He, he's telling us, and I know we're not surprised by that, but he's telling us the motives are ill. These are not pure motives. He's not weighing this case accurately or fairly or what's going to happen. He has an ill motive. He's not interested in morality or what God would have because we're introduced to this widow. He says there was a widow in that city, okay? And and at that time, there was no social network to help this person. It, 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 widows, often they were to be cared for by the families first, as scripture teaches, and then uh, by the church. There comes a moment where the church is to care for the widows that way. It's biblical actually, but the families to meet those needs first. And it says that because of this, it's drawing our attention to, she's she or he, they're helpless. They need help, right? And and so there should be a softness to this man's heart. There should be, as a judge, wanting to help here. There's a situation. And she came to him saying, get justice for me and my adversary, you know, from my adversary. She's been wronged in some way. And naturally our hearts are softened to that because obviously she's in need. There's nothing to, no one to help her, nothing to help her. And it says he would not for a while. He was indifferent to it. He didn't care about her situation or plight or his situation or plight. But afterwards, he said within himself, though, I do not fear God. Please notice he continues to bring this out. Not the right motive, nor regard men. Yet because this widow troubles me, the idea here is all the time, continuously going and troubling me and asking, and I will avenge her. Lest by her continually coming, she wearies me. So he says, even in human terms, there'll come a point where somebody just asks you and asks you. And finally, just stop. Fine. Give them what they want. Just stop the racket. Stop the noise. He says, even humans understand that. Then the Lord said... (laughs) Hear what the unjust judge said. Now, clearly, God's not comparing himself to that judge because God is not unjust. He's doing a compare and contrast. And shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? He's telling us the power of persistent prayer. Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. And that's the thing that the Christian, the believer in Christ, we need to understand that prayer is our mighty weapon. You want a change, whether it's in your neighborhood, your country, the world? It begins one heart at a time. And it begins with your heart and my heart first. It begins surrender to the Lord. It begins in prayer. Because when we open our hearts to the Lord in direct fellowship and communication, God is faithful to change hearts. You wouldn't have to have a law in the land because there wouldn't be a single person in line at an abortion clinic if it was the right heart. You wouldn't have companies that were trying to sell body parts of children to profit, you know, lab rats and mice and putting the, you know, hair of a human child on that to try to figure out how to regrow hair. Just this last couple of weeks that came out, the experiments that are going on. You wouldn't have any of that if you had the right heart. And that's why the Word of God is so important. Because it reminds us, it calibrates, it teaches us things that we may not ordinarily see when the focus is on self or what we believe is best for us. I've said it this way, it's really not a question about choice. People say that, and we hear people argue that there's nobody's relegated that choice a woman or a man has a right they have the ability to go and engage in sexual relations no one has stopped anyone from doing that god has a clear plan and path for that for one married man and one married woman that way that's god's design but even in sin men and women can fornicate again it's sin i'm going to call it out for what it is god abhors it it's an abomination But when they do that, nobody comes and puts them in jail. They don't get arrested. They're not getting locked up. There's no, the woman has a choice to do that. The man has a choice to do that. What we're talking about is a consequence to the choice. And two wrongs don't make a right. Murdering never became the answer to dealing with the first wrong of sin. Now, I understand there are times medically where it's necessary. And I understand to save mother's like, okay, fine, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. But murder has never, ever been part of God's plan for a human to take another life without his direct leading. As we read in the Old Testament, Joshua, I, or any of the other battles, God led the battle when they were to go in. And it was judgment for what? For idolatry, for those nations. But God doesn't even just murder aimlessly that way. No, he's a good God. So we need to get this right. We need, pastors need to stand up. We need to teach these things as scriptures would teach these things because there's no gray area in this whatsoever. Murder is always wrong. And, and a righteous judge understands that. It's not a question about choice. No different than when we thought, uh, how many people are familiar with Ebola? How deadly, pretty deadly, 48, 72 hours, you're dead, right? Pretty heavy stuff. First, they thought COVID was kind of going to follow that track initially when it came out. Remember that? Almost all the churches shut down, shut down people shut down. Wow, this could be really deadly. This could kill people. You know, how do we know how quick? People certainly did die. But I mean, it could have been far more deadly, virile, right, as they would say. I didn't have a ma- problem putting a mask on when, at first, you know, I'm told, hey, this could kill somebody and it protect somebody else. The government says, wear a mask if you're going to do something like this. I don't think there's a single one of us when we thought it was Ebola, you know, that kind of a no, absolutely. I want to protect you. You want to protect me. Nobody had a problem with that. We didn't go, government, you can't tell me that I shouldn't put a mask on. No, okay, I will. Fine. I have no problem with that because I don't want to harm somebody else. It can't be both ways. That can't be, they can't argue in one breath that that is wrong and a violation of free will. Or they argue it's not. We can tell you as a government that you need to mask up or you need to be vaccinated or you need to do whatever. Again, it's between you and Jesus. But my point is a government can tell, they have no problem with saying that. But they have a problem telling you, you can't murder a child please understand the evil we're talking about. This has never been about anything else. He says, I'll avenge them speedily. 50 years coming up in January. Jubilee, a reset. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on earth? That's heavy, isn't it? When he comes, will he really find? He's not talking about the rapture. He's talking about his second coming. He says when he comes, will he really find those that hold on to God's commandments, statutes, and judgments? Will he find people that have put God's will over their will? People that have a passion and a love and a zeal for Jesus? Also, he spoke this parable to some who trusted in themselves. God knows it's they go hand in hand, don't they? The idea of self-righteousness. Because after all, if you're going to disobey God, what are you doing? You're acting in self-righteousness, aren't you? I know better than God. I mean, let's least be honest about it. I think we owe that to each other. To just be honest about what we're doing. If we deny or we walk in disobedience. Okay? At least have character enough to do that. He says that they trusted in themselves that they were righteous. Their moral compass was the right one, not God's. And what else does that lead to? It leads to a bitterness. Why? It leads to people not being others focused because when you walk away from the Lord like that, then as he says in the last days, then eventually hearts grow cold. They wax cold. It's the same thing we read here. And they despised others. It's not surprising whatsoever. It's, it, God doesn't contradict himself. He, he says it almost over and over again in many different ways, This same idea. And then he gives the example or a parable, parable para, right? Alongside, casting alongside his truth. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners and adulterers, or even as his tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes and of all that I possess. And, and uh, the tax collector standing afar off would not so much as raise his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to, to his house, justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." Whoa, I didn't see that coming. Neither did the Jew in that day. You have a Pharisee, a man that society, the culture, the world would look at is a man of piety, a holy man, a man that's being lifted and compared to this other man that in the Jewish mind, a tax collector, filth. Why? Well, because Rome turned around and would put an offer, a publication, so to speak, making it known that you could subscribe or you could take a territory. And in so taking a territory, a municipality or a province area, you would take that and they would say, if you take this territory, you have to pay Rome X amount of dollars. What you charge above and beyond that is for you to keep. But what Rome will require from you is X dollars for that territory. So two things happen in the Jewish mind. One It's an agrarian society. They're farming. So many people to pay the tax often had to sell more land or sell animals. And if you do that, guess what happens? It's like debt. It kind of spirals. You know how debt catches up with us and spirals on us? That way it's exactly what was happening because they're selling more land to pay tax, but then they come back and want more tax and what they eventually can't sell more land and they can't produce more to pay the tax, right? And Rome knew that. They understood that. It was one of the ways they could confiscate land. They, they weren't ignorant to that. So this is what was going on. And so for a Jewish man to say, yes, I'll be a tax collector, it, it was like a direct betrayal to your own brothers and sisters because you grew up in the villages with these men and women. And now they're families. And you have to look and say, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm basically making you homeless, And then not only that, talk about adding insult to injury on top of it, you then went and charged them even more than what the tax was due so that you could do what? You could pay your tax and bills and everything else that way. And oh, by the way, where does that greed stop, right? Hey, I could use an extra pair of sandals. I could use an extra tunic. I could use an extra robe. And next thing you know, we build upon what we need compared to what we want. And so it was like a two for one. That's why the tax collector from the Pharisees, again, a compare and contrast parable. He wants us to understand the difference. I was just yesterday at um at a uh, production. I, I was able to go and see um a David, and one of the first things that they open up with in, in the character reference of David. Is they they go through and they talk they talk about how uh, and it's scriptural it's biblical but they go through and say man looks upon the outward appearance but God looks upon the heart and that's what we see here from all in, you know all references everything when this parable is being spoken by Jesus. When he's at verse 10, well, he didn't have a verse 10. When he's speaking this out loud, at this point, they're all going, oh my, this is a layup. That tax collector, what a heathen compared to this righteous man. Huh. Let's see what he does to the tax collector, huh? Well, not so quick, not so fast. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. Please underline that in your Bible. Does everybody catch that? He's not praying to God. Who's he praying to? himself, thy will be done. That's the first thing we notice right out of the gate there. He prays to himself. So this religious, pious, holy, apparently man, what God really sees is what's really happening. And the guy's praying to himself. He's not even praying to the Lord. There's no fellowship or relationship. An office doesn't determine your relationship with God. It has nothing to do with it that way. You'd like to assume that every pastor has a true relationship with Jesus Christ. But I think that would be a false. I think that would be something I would be very cautious and and careful. I would, you will know them by their fruits, as scripture says. And I speak that into my own heart. Because he said, he prayed thus with himself. God, and and I, I think of this because this happens sometimes in corporate prayer, far and few between. God, I thank you that I, circle I, am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. Oh, yeah, he's got a lot of love for his brothers, right? Right? The Decalogue hadn't expired yet, still had never expires. What were the first four? On the tablet, Moses' tablets, remember? First floor was focused on the vertical relationship. The latter, second tablet, six, were focused on the horizontal. We're going to see that this man's blowing the horizontal, certainly, and I would argue the vertical as well. He says, I again. That's the second I. I fast twice a week. I again. I give tithes of all that I possess. I again, right? And then the next collector, standing afar off, would not as so much as raise his, his eyes to heaven. He's saying that this man, when he's praying, he's actually lifting himself up in prayer. I, I, I have to tell you, I've been part of that, right? You know, corporate prayer. I, it's rare here, but I have heard men or women or, you know, I am so grateful, Lord, for the way you have used me. Thank you, God, for, you know, I'm glad I was there and can be, you know, it's like, well, what are we praying Lord, thank you for strengthening me. Lord, thank you for uh, the divine appointment. Lord, glory to your name. Or, I just want to make sure everybody in the room knows, huh? How about it, right? A little I, I, I. Jesus knows. He knows the motive of the heart, He knows how we're praying, He knows the, the intent of that. He wants us to pray. He wants us to even pray interceding, being others focused. Certainly we can come and say, Lord, I am blowing this. I'm a sinner. As a matter of fact, that's what this other man's going to do. It's not I that's the problem. It's the motive of it. To draw attention to who instead of whom. So this other man, he, he, he's standing afar off. He, he hasn't even come close Right? The idea is he's not even close to where the, you know, in this room where, where, you know, again, remember, those that seek the higher place compared to those that take the lower, lower place. Okay, see, so he, he's, he's far off, and he wouldn't so much as raise his eyes. He literally had such a reverential fear, he didn't, he didn't ever want to presume upon God. It's such a beautiful humility here. He didn't want to raise his eyes to heaven, Lord, I'm not worthy but he beats his breast. This is so beautiful. Such a contrast from this religious, pious leader, just broken and just, I love this man. I love this guy you know, whether this is an example or if this is an example Jesus actually witnessed when he was on earth. I love this man because he just literally, he's just, he's not beating himself up like in condemnation. He's just being genuine and real and going to the Lord and saying, man, I am blowing this. My thoughts betray me. My heart betrays me. He says, God be merciful to me, a sinner. He knows just like Paul declared, I am filthy rags. You know, you've heard me say that to you before standing in this pulpit. That's not piety. That's not me using a full sense of, of, uh, of uh, you know, pride or trying to do something. No, I know who I am in Christ. Because the measuring, the, be, the benchmark isn't looking to my left or my right comparing people that I may think, oh, you know, I'm doing better than them today. I don't do that, by the way. But, but I'm doing better. No, no, no. Jesus Christ is the measuring rod. That's my standard. And I'll tell you what, when I look at Christ, oh, my Lord, I am filthy rags covered by the blood, but filthy rags nonetheless. You see, that puts me in the right perspective. I now understand. I see things as God would have me see them. There is none of this. It's, Lord, how do you deal with me? How do you deal with me? He says, I love you. You're my son. You're my daughters. I love you. I only see... I don't see the sin anymore. I only see the covered righteousness, the beauty. All the dross has been ripped away. There's freedom. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, just as if he's never, ever sinned. He went down and it's beautiful, went back to his house, went about his business, the things occupying. Rather than the others, plural, or the other, excuse me, singular I meant to say, for everyone who exalts, everyone who builds themselves up that way, we all know people like that, you know, that they're holier than thou, right? We we use that term. He'll be humbled, right? And those who who humbles himself will be exalted. God will lift them up, but they're not lifting themselves up. Jesus is the author of that. I like that. I like that a lot. It's protection. Then they also brought infants to him. That, whenever you see that, it gives us a reason. So moms and dads, we should pay attention, right here, grandparents. First thing we read is that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called and said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them. Such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will will by no means enter it. So here we have a situation. God is teaching us that it's a parent's responsibility as well as grandparents, right? We bring our kids to the Lord because you're going to bring them to somebody. You're going to bring them to something. You're either going to bring them to Jesus or you're going to bring them to another master. I'll tell you that right now. And God's calling it out. He says, they, those who brought infants, I love to read this, that there were moms and dads that were given and, and they were focused and intentional on bringing their very children to the Lord. You know? What comes into your home? What movies? What, you know, I, I, I don't know about you, but I, you know, I... I I think back, I can't believe half of the things my parents let me watch, right? The 70s and the 80s. And you think about the movies and you have such fond, we have fond memories of them because they were a part of our childhood. We don't remember all the smut and dirt and junk. And then, you, hey, you got to see this cool thing, you know, and it's, the guy rides a hoverboard. It's going to be really neat. And you go ahead and put the thing on and you hear the swearing, you hear the innuendos, or you see the innuendos. <gasps> You're, whoa, whoa, time out. You shut that thing off. Whoa, whoa, that, Wow grandma let you watch, grandma and grandma, I thought you, hang on here, I didn't remember any of this, you know, you know, we went and saw that, um, you know, there was a Top Gun, you know, at, at the drive-in, right, and I was happy to say, you know, they took the Lord's name in vain once, which is like, oh, it screams my heart, right, he said, uh, I think there's only one or two cuss words in the whole thing, I was like, oh, no, no inappropriate, I, at least I don't remember, maybe there's, but inappropriate scenes, but I'm thinking about this. So I'm like, oh, you know, the kids are like, well, how does this, how did this start? I'm like, oh, it's Top Gun, you know, the first one, the, the Tom Cruise, you know. Please, I'm not encouraging anybody to go watch any of these things. I'm just get, pray for me. I'm a heathen, right? So just you know, what I'm saying to you is, is like, this is what, you know. So we turn around and, you know, I put it on for a, a few minutes. And I, I don't think we made it through the first five minutes. They took the Lord's name in advance. I said, no, that's it. That's sh- shutting that right off. I'm not going to let that happen. It's not going to be that kind of compromise. And so I shut it right off. That was it. And they're like, well, I said, well, you know what we're going to do? We have VidAngel or there's other one. I know Kevin told me about a clear play one or something. And so we run it. Everything in our house now gets run through that thing. And because what am I bringing my kids to? I have a responsibility. Whether well, it's my 21-year-old or, you know, down to my 11-year-old. I'm bringing them to something. What am I bringing them through? And I, and I think very uh, intentional about that. And I run it through the, the VidAngel thing. And and all the bad words are taken out, scenes are, you know, you can even filter. I don't even, kissing, you don't even need to see that. That's a one man, it should be beautiful for a husband and a wife. That's precious. It doesn't need to be seen by everybody else like that. So we, I filter all that out. There's nothing you get, it doesn't even let the the mind or the flesh get, what is the word, um, cackled up that way or anchored up that way. You, all that's a can you imagine? We're living in such a time when there's even technologies like that. Much is given, much is required. What about if we have those technologies, we choose not to use them? Oh, my. You know, better off just to shut the thing off altogether, right? But the idea here is that he's saying that, look, don't ever prevent children from coming to him. Because they come with simple faith and obedience and childlike faith. And that's what heaven is made of. And I love how the Lord has raised up a school here. It's wonderful to see the kids play. They come in, they learn their scriptures, they go through chapel. It is blessed. The teachers, the teachers that God has ordained to be here, anointed, you know, it's wonderful. The Bible is the priority. The Bible is the priority, what we do here with the children. And I love to see them on the playground. And sometimes, yes, you know, Pastor Mac gets a little competitive. You know, it's sometimes three or four against one. No, they're getting really competitive. And sometimes you have to turn around and say, Okay, we're going to pray through this. I'm still going to win. And no, no, don't do that. That's bad exhortation. Bad pastor, right? No, but you turn around and pray for me. You think I'm joking. Pray for me, right? But you see their beautiful innocence and their faith where they come together and they just want to play together. They just want to hang out. To they do different things. And, and I love it. I love it because it's such a constant reminder. They don't come with all these motives, they're not coming with all this ulterior motives of how they can get away and what they want to get one up on. No, they don't have a heart like that. They're just coming with a pure heart. Okay, Lord, you know, uh, Mister Smith, Missus Smith. Okay, so what you want me to do in class? Okay, I can, I can do that. I'll listen. I'll, I'll sit still. They need reminding. We all need reminding. But, but it's beautiful, and it, it's, it's, it's what we tell the t- teachers and children's ministry here to look at it that way. Sometimes, you know. I tell them, I said, do you think it's not going to get worse, more chaotic with the children? Because there's la- less happening in the homes. They're, and many of them go to the public. So they're like getting indoctrinated with it, thinking it's normal. I'm like, what? this is what we're competing with. I mean, the answer is not to just say sorry. No, it's to try to bring that discipline, that love of Jesus and bring it together perfectly. So there's truth and love, not one without the other. So that we do what? We don't prevent a child from ever coming to the Lord. Never meant prevent a child from coming to Jesus. But he says that the disciples, thinking they were doing a good thing, they say, oh, no, 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 you can't, no, those kids, They, you know. No, Jesus got more important things. And Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, no, no. Don't ever prevent a child from coming to me. But Jesus called them to him and said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them for such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. It's the most beautiful thing when you teach a child how to pray and they go in their room and they pray when, when, you know, not forced, but they actually pray and you watch just the simplicity of it. It's not fancy words. It's not this big puffed up long prayer that's, oh my Lord and I, you know. It is just simple. Jesus, Daddy, Father, I love you. Pray for Mommy and Daddy. they they need help. You know, (laughs) (laughs) maybe that's just my, maybe I've listened too much to my son's prayers, right? (laughs) Mommy and Daddy need help. (laughs) Jesus, you need to give them two hearts. No, but That's the kind of stuff that's so beautiful and simple. I can learn so much when I hear my children pray with such innocence, purity. It's never about them. They're, you know, it's such a relationship. Remember, there's some parents in here, you remember the first time you saw your kids do that? Initially, it's a battle sometimes, isn't it? It's a battle. I remember it was a battle sometimes. And Then we watched, I'll never forget my oldest. you know I remember Lisa and I he was 10 or 11 years old. We'd go back and forth. He was in Calvary Chapel, uh, Christian Academy, he was in the school. We'd go back and we'd pray for him, prayed for him. And I walked by one night, we'd come and kiss him goodnight, talk him in and do all our, our bedroom, bed, uh, bedtime routine. And I remember coming over and I saw my son on his knees, his hands like this over his face was calling out to Jesus. He said, Jesus, help me be you who you want me to be. I want to be like you. I was wrecked. I literally, I didn't, I just had to go to my room because I began to weep. This is what you mean when you said it's like the kingdom of God. This is how pure it is. It's how beautiful it's supposed to be. God, forgive me for tainting it. Forgive me for putting my fingerprints on it. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, what, (laughs) why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. You know, the commandments do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said, all these things I have done for my youth."s So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell so all that you have and distribute to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful for he was very rich. Now, a couple of things that the Lord's pointing out to us. First of all, this certain ruler, again, his name doesn't matter because any one of us can be, if we're honest, put ourselves right in this place. We read from the accounts of Matthew and Mark. They also have the parallel accounts. I I recommended to um, first service. I'd recommend this to you. I I ordered a few copies of these to put in our bookstore, but it's called the Harmony of the Gospels. Harmony of the Gospels by A. T. Robertson. This is an older book. I love it. Every single student of Scripture needs this. Uh, It doesn't have to be this exact one, but this is the one I like. Why? Because it gives you the parallel of the Synoptics—Matthew, Mark, and Luke and then obviously you get John as well, and I, I think on Amazon it was $13, you know, so I went, and then I, I, I ordered a few to put in the bookstore um, over the years, because the last few um, weeks with the passages, we some people, oh, that reminds me of what Jesus said about this or that, and, and good questions, uh, well, is that the same thing he meant in Matthew, and we can open a harmony and find out, no, 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 that correlates chronologically with maybe Matthew chapter 20, and we're only in Luke chapter, you know, 18. You get my point. It helps us understand in harmony where he's at chronology chronologically as he's moving and making his way through. It is so powerful. And again, for $13, it should be in every every student of the Bible, every, every servant of the Lord's library, if you have the ability of uh, $13, if the Lord would bless you with that, um... But I encourage you, because reading Matthew and Mark in conjunction with this, you realize a few things that aren't just pointed out in Luke, Dr. Luke's gospel here. First of all, he's a rich man. This ruler is a rich man, not just, not just any ruler. The second thing, a ruler. He's not a ruler of, like we would think politically. Most scholars uh, believe he's a ruler of a synagogue, because that term for ruler is what you would read when he says, and a ruler of the synagogue, it's the same word. It's the same idea here. It implies the same thing. So this man apparently is a ruler of a synagogue. At least we believe. We don't know for certain, but it reads that way. And it says, he asked him saying, good teacher. Well, that to our Jewish minds, that should trigger a couple things. Any child that had gone through rabbinical school or, 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 you know, Hebrew school or anything like that as as a young Jewish man or, you know, man or woman, whatever like that, man would 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 have read good teacher. They would know that no one is to be called good but God. They would have understood that. So, first of all, we learn a little bit by the way this man even comes to come to Jesus. What we're going to read is this is going to be a lordship issue. And I'll explain why I say that in a minute. He's not doubting this man has ability to save. He wouldn't have come to him if he didn't think he could offer salvation. This has to do more with lordship. This has to do more with that idea of a master following, surrendering, submitting, obedience. He, he, he's bringing this out because God is good to, you know, ring fence these things in for us so we're not wondering. But the man comes, this ruler of the synagogue, he comes and he says, good teacher. Now, Messiah Jesus would have immediately went, interesting. He's the ruler of a synagogue. He's calling me good teacher, which is applying divinity, because it was only to be used with the divine. But yet he's not calling me Lord. That's strange. I believe Jesus would have heard that and went, hmm, okay, I see where we're coming from. He, He would have understood this man's heart a little bit, okay? He would understand that this man is focused on works. This man is not thinking about things that have to do more with uh, the, the, the beauty of, of Scripture, the full counsel of Scripture, of, of freedom in Christ, love, truth. This man is really focused on what he has to do. And he says, what shall I do? Not what have you done, not what can you do, not understanding in fairness yet. Crucifixion hasn't happened. So in fairness, under the law, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Excellent question, isn't it? what do I need to do to spend, uh, to go to spend life in heaven, eternity in heaven? Again, not Lord, not master. And, and look at, look at how God's wisdom on this, right? Look at how he, he, he says, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? First thing he triggers right on. He caught it. Jesus didn't miss it. Every word Jesus hangs on. Every one of your words, he hangs on. He's in love with us. This is why do you call me good? He's drawing his attention to the fact that if you're calling me good, what are you implying? You're implying I'm divine. If I'm divine, then that makes me Messiah. And if I'm Messiah, why aren't you addressing me as Lord? Why am I not your Lord? I may be your savior, but why am I not your Lord? Okay. He says, no one is good, but one. So he calls it back because again, He's saying, hey, I don't disagree with that. You're right in what you're saying. There is only one that's good. And who is that? God. He's connecting the dots. He's saying, yes, listen to what you're saying out of your mouth, acknowledge it, and now let's start behaving accordingly or uh, understanding that, right? you know the commandments. He then automatically says, you know. How does he know that? Because Jesus knows our hearts. He knows our intention. He knows our minds. He knows our thoughts. He looks right at him and says, you know. And what does he focus? Does he focus on the first four or does he go right to the second six? He goes right to the second tablet of Moses, right to the second six, which is dealing all with the vertical do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother. He goes through the six, he goes right, right to that, right? And this ruler, this rich young ruler, he says, all these things I have kept from my youth. If we learn a couple things about this man, what are we learning? First of all, this man has discipline. I like that. He has discipline. He is intentional about these things. He's thinking about these things. He's intentional about his walk, his his, his relationship that way, as far as to the commandments, you might say. And I think we can imply, or it can be implied, that this man is quasi-moral. It's not that he's trying to walk contrary to God. He's trying to what can I do? Works, uh, more morality there. So we see some of that. So when Jesus heard these things, he said to him, so he looks at him and Jesus says, you still lack one thing. Huh. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. He gives him an invitation here. Now, again, if you had a harmony of the gospels, you know, if you read the book of Mark, we actually read a couple things. One, it says that in Mark, it says that Jesus looked upon him with love. This wasn't a, a rebuke like, hey, you're blown it, buddy. Get out of here. No, he says, he looks at him with all endearment, all heart, all love. I love you. Come follow after me. Stop putting one foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom. Stop trying to do this balancing act. Stop getting so far. Come follow me. And your very question will be answered today. yes. Because today you will inherit the kingdom of God. It is before you, it is for you as a believer. As a believer of Jesus Christ. In his invitation, he was actually answering this man's question as well, wasn't he? He was saying yes. He was saying yes, this is how you do it. We also lead in Mark, Mark's gospel, that this man walked away. This man clearly knew what Jesus was saying. Jesus started with the six at the second tablet, but then quickly when he heard this man's answer, and says, yeah, I've done all those things. Good, you're horizontal? Okay, really? Let's talk about the vertical. Let's go to the first four. What is he pointing out to this man? Sell. This man's a rich. We know Mark's count. Matthew's got, he's a rich man. What has he done? I, I've said it this way in the past, and I, and, I, and I please, I hope I never misrepresent God with the, the simplicity I try to use in explaining this. It's just, it's just how I relate to it. That anything in my heart... Anything between my heart and God, my Lord, anything in between that by definition is idolatry. Regardless of motive or cause, it's idolatry. It doesn't matter, priority, order, rank. It's not a ranking. You know, I, I've heard, well, you know, God, then this, then, this. No, no, no. That helps us in human terms. But no, it's God. And God is everything. Everything. And so there is no balance to any of that. Not supposed to be balance. It's God. And so this man, not that wealth is wrong. He's not, the problem isn't the wealth. The problem is the wealth has become idolatry. This is what this man's trusting in, his security. Now, it doesn't flat out say that, but it's implied by reading Mark's gospel, knowing that when he hears this, he just goes, he walks away. He's basically saying, I reject what you're saying. I will not do it. Not that I can't. I will not. What God is showing us right here is that he wants all of our hearts. And we can know who Jesus is from a, this is Salvinic text, from a salvation perspective to know who he is. We can even believe he's divine, good teacher. But if we aren't willing to turn around and take Jesus and say, Lord, Lord, that starts a good start. I'm a sinner. Not that I've kept all these things and I'm great. Remember, we just read earlier the parable right before. The man that went away justified recognized who he was and he blew it, right? I blow it. That's the first step, recognizing a need for a savior. The second step is saying, Lord, I want you to be my God. Not a God, not even just the God, definite article, but my personal Lord and Savior. I believe you can save me from my sin. I believe you washed me and will cleanse me. I believe the work you did at Calvary, the atoning work, I believe that's past, present, and future. If you profess with your mouth, right, and believe in your heart, Jesus is Lord. You can be saved. As part of that process, there comes a point low, where we then have to turn around and say, well, if I really believe that, then why am I going to follow after the things from another master? Because now it's due loss Now it's blood-bought. Now you belong to Christ, and the very blood that washed you is also the blood that's conforming you into his likeness and image through the process of sanctification. When we reject that, That's when the lordship issue happens because we're rejecting God's sovereignty over our lives. You might say, well, what do I have to do with that? Well, it's very simple. He's asked us to submit and surrender, to trust him and not our self-righteousness, as we already read earlier, as he gave an example of the Pharisee earlier. It's the same thing he's telling us here. And he's telling everyone that hears this so that nobody misunderstands what salvation really looks like and how good God is and how powerful God is and how sovereign God is, that he can change hearts, minds, and souls. He could transform anyone's heart here. And, and it doesn't matter where you're from, what you've done, or, or, or what, your, what your baggage is that way. He's capable to do it. And no matter how much you try to do, the measuring rod isn't compared to another guy, another woman, another person. It's directly in contrast to Jesus Christ. No one kept the law. You can keep the latter half of the six, but you can't fake the first four. You can't fake the first four. He knows. And so he looks at him. He says, hey, sell all that you have and distribute to the poor. Nothing wrong with that. He's not, you know, he's saying, hey, go get you. it's not what you, you need. He's not saying there's anything wrong with having things you need. It's not, that's not what he's, con- you know, it's a misinterpretation of scripture to say he's, he's, con- he's um, you know, he's condemning that. He's not. What he's condemning is you putting or me putting anything in between your heart and Christ. And I get it. There's people maybe here this morning, you're hearing this, this is the first time you might have heard this. You know, you've heard the Kumbaya gospel. You've heard the American gospel. It's great when you read his words because Jesus is not grammatically challenged. This is the words of Jesus Christ, the very man that men and women say that is their Lord and Savior. And these words are holy and true. They are God-breathed. And he's not mincing words here. Sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And he says, come follow me. I love you. I'm not done with you. Come follow me. When he heard this, he became very sorrowful. Why? He understood what he was saying. Lay that thing down. And the man said, I I won't do it. He says, you understand you're rejecting God then he went off. And it says because he was really rich or very rich. And when Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful, he said, how hard is it for those who have riches because they put their trust in them, not because money inherently is the problem, to enter the kingdom of God? Because Jesus had a heavy heart here. He loved this man, as Mark tells us. He's sad by this. He's sad by it by his creation that loves his creation and the things out of his creation more than they love the creator. God's got a beautiful, soft, and gentle heart that way. Riches can be an obstacle, idolatry, right? Placing our full trust and faith in Jesus and God to follow Jesus is all he wants us to do. And then he helps us lay those things down, addictions, whatever they might be. He's a gracious God. He helps us. He doesn't leave us unarmed or without power. But we can't say, God, help me with this or help me in this matter and, let, and not turn around and say, well, God, well, you're trying to help me over here, but I mean, ignore that because I don't care. I don't want your help for that. I just want your help for what I need your help with. It doesn't work that way. And he's not a master, is he? No, then you've made him a re- or I've, re- somebody's relegated him to a genie in a bottle. There's no relationship in that. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Scholars and commentators used to say, oh, you know, there's an archway and, you know, they had to go through and it was this eye of the needle archway and, and the reality, though, is as time went on in architecture and all the technology and everything, we we discovered there is no such thing. So all the commentators that wrote these things, it's we realize that, no, what God is talking about is that it's humanly impossible. You, you know, I think it was Gail and said, you can blend them up and send them through that way. But any other way, it's it's humanly impossible to get a camel through the eye of a needle, okay? The idea here is it's humanly impossible. Why do I know he's talking about impossibility? Because as I read further down in verse 27, he calls it out just that way. And those who heard it said, then who can be saved? Or, you know... Who then can be saved that way? Because the Jewish mind, right? The rich have received God's blessing and they must be more spiritual. That's why they're wealthy. No, God is saying, I look upon the heart, not on the outward. I see these things. And he answers the question very clearly in verse 27. The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. So what's impossible, because a man can't take a camel and put it through the eye of a needle, my God can. My God, your God can. Then Peter said, and good old Peter, see, we have left all and followed you. We're willing, we'll do it. We're on board. What do we get? (laughs) That's what Peter's doing, he's chiming in here. We're We're gonna close with this right here. So he said to them, assuredly I say to you, there is no one... Who has left house, parents, brothers, or wife or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who shall not receive many times more in this present time and in the, the age to come eternal life. What he's telling us here very clearly is Peter, you can't out-give God. You know, that's what, that's what God's really, Jesus is saying to Peter. You can't out He says, Sure, I say there's no one who has left house? Wait a minute. You mean... This is biblical that pastors or people in general or you missionaries, they may be called to leave their homes. They may be called to leave their parents, their brothers, or even a a spouse, a wife, for the kingdom of God. And the answer is yes, yes. You know, one of the first things before I stepped out in ministry and how my pastor guided me in Scripture, when I believed the Lord put a calling on my heart, As we sat down, husband and wife. He encouraged that. And I looked at Lisa and I said, Lisa, will you release me to the ministry? She said, Yes. And then I looked at her and I said, Well, I release you. I looked at my children. I said, Will you release me? Where God will come first. That's my first ministry now. Will you release me to that? Of course. I told you the story before. My dad, the day that I, excuse my mom, I meant to say, the day that I was praying about coming down here to start a Bible study, that was the day my mother came and told me she was diagnosed with stage four lung cancer in Rochester, New York. And I thought, how am I going to travel? You know, I didn't know it was going to be eight months at the time, but how am I going to travel back and forth for a Bible study? Um, Mom, you're sick. I can't abandon you like that. And I know the Lord used her powerfully because I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. I couldn't leave my mother that way. But she looked at me with such a a sternness to her. Little Italian women have a way of doing that. You know, young, short Italian women can do that. And she says, you will go. You will honor the Lord. And she said it would all resolve. And I was like, okay, Lord. It's you and me. And that's a multitude. That's what God wants for every one of us. He doesn't, if there's, if there is a situation where the spouses, well, the, the, the family, that's one of those red flags when I'm talking to people, that's a red flag for me. I stop, wait a minute, what's going, you know, where is, because there's not unity in the home then, there's not a release. Jesus Christ, he's, he, I want us all to see that this is Biblical. Assuredly, I say to you, there is no one who has left a house or a parent. The implication is that people are what? Leaving houses and parents. He wouldn't have said there's no one that hasn't done it if they hadn't done it. Brothers, wives, children. Not because they left for any other reason than very clearly here for the sake of the kingdom of God. The four is the reason. The sake of the kingdom of God. And then he says, who shall not receive... Many times more in this present time. In other words, recognizing that we've already given the greatest gift we could ever be given, and that's Jesus Christ, eternal life. Do you remember the question that the rich man asked, rich young ruler asked? How do I inherit eternal life? Yeah, for us, we are rich spiritually. Every one of us in this room is rich spiritually when we're looking at it from Christ's eyes. We've received many times more in this presentation because we have a security in Christ. As Paul would describe, you know, death, what can you do? Hades, what, what are you going to do? You have no power over me. To, do you realize the security and comfort we have in that? That unbelievers can never say that. They don't know what's going to happen. You know, I, you go in for surgery, you know, you're going under the knife, you don't know what's going to happen. To pray and go, Lord, have someone with the body present with you, and to know that you're going to be okay no matter what. What a beautiful gift that is this side of eternity, to have that settled and not worry. I don't have to ever worry that way. It's like he just took it off my plate. Never worry about that again. I want to be in his will. That's where I spend my time, you know, praying, Lord, what do you have for me, right? You know, I don't want to miss it. I don't want to second best. I want your best. But but in this present time, and he says, in the age to come eternally. And I think of that as, you know, the wedding feast of the Lamb, right? I think of that even the Bema seat and the Bema judgment, right? Where we're going to stand before him. And I'll talk about that a little bit more when we have more time next week, but as the Lord should uh, tarry. Where we're casting crowns. We're, we're all the things that we've done on this earth that we're going to just give back to him because we know we didn't do of our own strength. And I think you know, musicians can come forward. I think what a beautiful, beautiful picture that God is giving us that you can never outgive God. That no matter whether you give your husband, your wife, or your children to ministry, or whether you give your parents, or a house, or comfort, or security, all those things that you would say on earth, is you can't outgive God. God will bless you, spiritually speaking, in this life and the life and the age to come. What a big and wonderful great God we have. Amen? I mean, I can't think of anything I'd rather do than serve him, be, in, be with him, spend eternity with him, and spend the rest of this life that he gives me, whether it's one more day or however many years, if He should, tarry, telling everybody about how wonderful my Jesus is, how special my Jesus is, how nobody else is like my Jesus, and you need my Jesus. And my Jesus loves you. You, as I've said before, are the apple of his eye. He is so madly in love with you. And all he sees is that beautiful heart and countenance. And he can't wait for you to be with him for all of eternity. He longs for that. Be in prayer. It's our communication with him. Come out corporately. Come together as a flock pray for one another, intercede, be part of the movement of God in this place.